May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Kuk Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Kuk Audio and Kuk Archives, helping to preserve the legacy of Shunyu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his, and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, David Cohen. Uh, David Cohen uh, is not a Zen student and has never been a Zen student. He is not a Buddhist and he has never been a Buddhist. And thus, uh, he qualifies uh, as a guest for um, Kuk uh, podcast. Um, however, he's been around some of these people who do all that. Uh, David, uh, David's sister is the, uh, or was the illustrious Darlene Cohen, who, uh, along with her husband, Tony Patchell, started, um, you know, I don't know what it's called, the the Zendo, the Zen group in Guerneville in California. And um, she was a real character. She was really great. So David came out here, and, and because uh, she was his sister, um, I got to know him. Uh, and um, so uh, he's also... Uh, been around the Zen Center uh, doing things, uh, helping out. He's a mechanic, he's an electrician, he's a plumber. He's, he's uh, you know, in, in recent decades, uh, he's more like tech support. He's He has um, uh, often been uh, tech support for Cuke Archives and um, other sorts of... Uh, of uh, Phenomenal assistance. Um, uh, you know, yeah, he's really good at um, uh, diagnosing things. Uh, like, for instance, I had this really irritating sound. Like, well, it, it, it wasn't totally irritating, but it was irritating that I didn't know why my car was making it. And I, and I, uh, um, so, uh, you know, I let him do a test drive of it and he came back and said, you've got luggage rack flute. <laughs> and what it was is I had a, a luggage rack. I always put luggage racks on top of my cars. Even I had a little Honda, uh, Accord. It was a really nice car then that when they were just coming out in demand and I had the dealer put a, uh, a luggage rack on it. And, um, and, uh, anyway, uh, the, the, um, so I, th this was a Toyota, probably a Toyota Tercel. Yeah. 
and it had a luggage rack, and and you know the the luggage rack was made with uh, like aluminum sort of piping, and um, it uh, I think there was it was like square piping or rectangular piping, and um, uh, the 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 plugs on the front ends, or maybe the plug on one of the the front ones, and maybe on the back it come out so. As the car was driven, he explained to me, the wind going through it uh, turned it into a flute, and it was playing. Anyway, he figured that out right away, and uh, nobody else had. So I, I always thought uh, he was really good at diagnosing things, and uh, so I thought I would share that with you. Um, so, um, so David and I uh, have you know, been in touch and uh, socialized quite a bit uh, from around 1980. And uh, so uh, I called him before I was going to call him for the podcast. And I called him the day before just to, you know, because we hadn't talked in a long, long time, you know. And uh, so we talked two hours. So I thought, all right, we have it out of our system. But um, actually for this um uh, podcast uh, talk. I had to cut thirty minutes out of it, and a lot of it, you know, is. I mean, if, if you're listening to this podcast because you want to improve yourself or attain enlightenment, uh, it might be disappointing. In fact, it might be disappointing with any of my podcasts because uh, we're uh, actually a, an anti self help organization here at Cuke Archives, uh, but. Um, you know, you might find it instructive in other ways. Uh, and, um, and so uh, he talks about being at uh, Green Gulch Farm as the mechanic. And, you know, uh, he, he says it wasn't that long, you know, like like a year. Uh, but he was there a lot. And some of the uh, things he mentions were in other years, you know. Uh, like, uh, I, I know one of the things he said was 1983, and um, so, anyway, early 80s, I'd say around Green Gulch. No, I can remember him at Green Gulch in 85, 86. So, uh, you know, he'd come in and do things to help. He wasn't, he wasn't coming there to practice uh, meditation. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, he... Um, you know, he mentioned at that point he and Christina Huggins got married. And I really blew it at that point. I should have gotten him to talk about his wedding. But it just didn't occur to me. Uh, I mean, one thing we do talk about toward the end is is our disappearing minds. <laughs> and he's got some sort of condition. I don't know. He seems okay to me. Uh, but we... we brush over that toward the end. Uh, but anyway, David and Christina were married in a redwood grove in Larksburg, I believe. Uh, I can see it now. Uh, I love that place. Uh, by Silas Hoadley, who was one of uh, Suzuki Roshi's closest students and disciples, who uh, died... Um, 
last year, not that long ago, uh, and who was a wonderful guy, really solid. Everybody liked Silas, really down-to-earth guy. Uh, and so the... Um, uh, God, he probably would, David, if I brought it up, he would, and there are things to say about the wedding, but I can't remember what they are. Uh, put them in an email, David. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to make you a little page now on cuke.com. Maybe you already have one to put a little bit of this stuff on. Uh, but here, at the wedding, after the wedding, Silas gave... David and Christina, the uh, wedding, you know, it was like a Xerox of uh, the, the wedding uh, ceremony. And it, it, it was mainly, uh, it was very short, but, it, you know, Silas said things extemporaneously. All right. I'm just reading it off in cuke.com. I just wrote in the site search box, uh, David Cohen Wedding Silas, and it came up. All right. Wedding message. You have been married here in this sanctuary. Christina, you have been joined with a husband. David, you have been joined with a wife. Your parents, your friends, all things have brought you here today. Your marriage will give confidence to others. This is the way to live and fulfill your lives. Please take care. Treat each other as the source and make the everyday life your teacher. Know your unconditioned selves. Courtesy and kindness, even in adversity, are the doors of compassion. Love is the fruit of compassion. Originally composed by Shunyu and given to you by his disciple Silas, August 25th, 1984. So isn't that the shortest wedding ceremony? So, uh, now um, I guess that's it. I guess it's time to give David a call, as we say here, um, and uh, have our pause to meditate first, though. I just came across a... Uh, a, a liberally translated uh, version of Tilopa's six mm, words. I think it's called six words. Tilopa is, oh God, who was he? He was either the, maybe he was the successor of Naropa or maybe he was Naropa's teacher, I forget. Uh, anyway, he's one of the great, one of the great ancestors in uh Mahayana Buddhism. And Tilopa had here, I can see what he calls it, Tilopa's six words of advice. Um, hmm. 
there's actually two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven in English. Maybe it's six words in uh, Tibetan. Um, it would just there, there might be a, a negative ending for the verbs, which happens in a lot of languages. But in English, uh, we have uh, the negative expressed with a separate word. In this case, don't. So here's Tilopa's advice, his six words on meditation. Oh, and one reason I'm saying this is uh, because uh, David, you know, uh, he told me once he can't meditate. You know, his mind's just too busy or something. Um, of course, that's one reason why people meditate, because their minds are busy. And the continual practice of meditation tends to uh, slow that down, uh, reduce the grip of the thought stream. So here's Tilopa's six words on meditation. Don't recall. Don't imagine. Don't think. Don't examine. Don't control. Rest. So the last one's positive. I mean... It's not a negative construction. Rest. Hmm. Of course, you can't in meditation, now this is my two cents here, you can't not recall through any effort. <laughs> it's like that book, Don't Think of a Pink Elephant or something. Don't recall, don't imagine, don't think, don't examine, don't control, rest. Anyway, that's meditation. I love it. And what is meditation? It's basically nothing. And that's what Zen is to me. It's basically nothing. But um, in other words, not doing anything. It's, uh, you might say, well, we're practicing, we're we're uh, doing sitting and walking meditation. Yeah, but the whole point is to have an experience of just being ourselves without adding anything. So anyway, enough of all that. Here we go with our pause to meditate. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever, for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be there to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we will give David Cohen a call.
Hello there. Hi. How you doing? Hi. You're someone I wanted to talk to for one of these podcasts because you are a uh, you've been a fly on the wall a lot, and um, uh, so I'm sure you'll have your own uh, unique perspective of uh, the <laughs> Zen Center. That's you know, just way. one angle, but. Uh, but uh, tell me, what, what are you up to these days? How's it going with you? Actually, not a whole lot. Um, I've just gotten out of a um, tumultuous relationship um, in a very final way in that she died. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of sort of been picking up the pieces from that and figuring out, you know, the lessons there and this and that. And so basically that's all excuse for I haven't done shit lately, but I, I, I very happily have some plans. Um, I'm going to embarking uh, on a trip with my, one of my very oldest friends. Um, and you know, uh, it's been a long time since I've been on a road trip. Where? Looking forward to it. Hmm? Where? Across Canada. Really? Up. Uh- what month? Well, what month are you going to start? June. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, he um, he lives in Vermont, and he's coming west with his paramour, and they have a little travel trailer. But she's involved in some other business, and she's not going back with him, and so. I'm going to accompany him for at least part of it. And we were talking about, you know, what route we wanted to take and decided that neither one of us has done Canada and we've both done all the others extensively. So, uh-huh. so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, I that... think I can cross the entire country and not have to worry about being shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is a prevalent concern. I mean, we've had, we have had twice as many mass shootings as days so far this year. Yeah. Yeah. America's got a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. Oh, you mean, you mean it's your fault? I don't uh, think that phrase, I'm sorry, uh, implies that it's my fault. It means that, uh, like, but I noticed people respond that way. They say, oh, you know, yeah, I hear that. But to me, you know, you know, somebody says, my dog died. I go, I'm sorry. They said, well, uh, you didn't kill it. Uh, but, um, yeah, well, I should say, I feel your pain. No. I should say, <laughs> David. Uh, so you've been in the Bay Area since when? Eighty. Nineteen eighty. Yeah, I I lived in San Francisco in seventy four, but I've been here continuously since eighty. And why did you come out? To be with your wife. <laughs> um, so soon they forget. Um, well, now, 
Why'd you come out the first time in 74? Um, why indeed? Uh, it was more the culmination of a cross-country odyssey. Mm-hmm. I basically built the very first RV there ever was. I I got a step van and put a kitchen in it and and made beds that folded down and had a TV and electricity and yeah, I mean I did it up. Wow. And came out west. Who? And basically Who? Who was? Who who and you left? No, I I came out with I came out with Heidi and her son Greg. Oh yeah. And um, and and I didn't take to San Francisco and moved back in not quite a year, moved back east. Yeah. And but you knew somebody in San Francisco. Well, Darlene, actually, when in 74, Darlene was at Tossar. Yes, your sister. I mean, that's one connection. Uh, Darlene. Yeah, Cohen. but I mean, I. But, but no, I didn't didn't have anybody in San Francisco other than Darlene, who wasn't there. Uh huh. Did you see her at all on that trip? Uh, I think in passing, maybe once or twice, but we didn't spend any real time together. Hmm. No. So the one time I was in San Francisco, she was at Tosser. Seventy-four. I was there in seventy-four too. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Um, so what was really interesting is that I found out that an old friend was also in San Francisco in '74, and if we had known each other were here, we would have certainly hung out. But we didn't know each other were here. Huh. Huh. And only found out years later. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, so, um, so uh, now you say you came out in 1980 because of my beloved first wife at the time. Well, she was a she was a great excuse. I I was basically, um, you know, 80 was not a good financial year. I was in business for myself. The phone had stopped ringing. I was sick of winter. And I met your wife. Where? And, when? Oh, and, and, and more importantly, Zen Center offered me a job. And I'm like, all right, I have a girlfriend and a job there. And I have winter and shit here. I wonder what I'll do. Yeah. Now, all right. So if Zen Center offered you a job and you knew Diane, you must have come in contact with them in 74, right? No. How how did that come about? Oh, because I came to California every year to visit Darlene. Oh. So I had hooked up I had hooked up with Diane at Christmas time prior to my coming out in May. Oh. Oh, and that was 1980. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, it would have been Christmas 79. And then I moved out in 80. Wow. Now, I would like to make this clear. She was 
uh, she's now Diane back then and I uh, separated in 76. Uh-huh. Uh, so you met her around that. Did you meet me? Did we, didn't we meet? Yes. Yes, we met very soon after. Um, we met at that Christmas time visit. You called her and I was there and you guys talked and she hung up and, and she said, my husband's on his way over. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So you and I met in, in 79. Ah, tell me more. But, But I think the first person I met at Zen Center was Peter Redney. Oh, is that right? And how did you meet him? I was visiting Darlene. I was dealing cocaine. I was doing way too much cocaine. Hmm. And I, I was a good boy. I didn't bring any with me. But when I came out, Darlene was at Green Gulch. And I... I think I was staying at Green Gulch, um, but I I couldn't sleep. (laughs) And I just wandered out to Mirror Beach and watched the ocean. And I believe Peter came out, was down at the beach, you know, also feeling, you know, ocean meditative. And we just started shooting the shit. And if I I remember correctly, God, I. But, yeah. Oh, back then he just uh, he he was the uh, you know he he smoked pot daily uh, when he was at Green Gulch and people knew it. Uh, he sort of kept it down to the lower fields. Uh, but when you say you were dealing too much coke, you mean on the East Coast, right? Yeah, and you came to the West Coast and. Um, you had trouble sleeping. Yeah. Do you still have trouble sleeping? That funny. We had the poker game today. And that came up with the poker game. That I, you know, people were talking how they were taking naps and the like. And I went, you know, I'm the oldest person here. And I'm seldom asleep before 2 a.m. And they asked the same question. They said, well, do you have trouble sleeping? And I said, well, that's totally dependent on whether or not you consider staying up till 2 a.m. trouble. I don't. It's I've always been a night owl. So uh, basically the main the main reason I don't get to sleep till two is because I don't even start thinking about it till one. Yeah, but that depends on how much sleep you get. Like well, right, because I don't get up till nine. So I mean, I get seven hours. Yeah. But I do remember you talking about having trouble sleeping. I, I'm a lifelong long insomniac, but I'm I've just sort of I gave in. Yeah, it's I don't consider it a problem. I just went well, quit pushing the river. Yeah. So you were there around Zen Center. Do you did you uh, what did you think? Do you have any observations? My observation was that. As cults go, it was about as pleasant as they are. Anything in particular happen? Or, uh... 
Well, I mean, I was having a lot of fun observing you guys from the auto shop. There were there were things I noticed, like if there was a radio in the auto shop, and if I played rock and roll, I would be spoken to fairly quickly, but that I could play classical music as loud and as long as I wanted. Huh. That's interesting. I remember... Oh God, what's his name? Who was the who was the priest who was the excellent pianist? Lou Ridgman. I remember at one point Lou took me aside to give me the pitch. Yeah. And uh and I I you know, I basically was very upfront about the fact that that, you know, that's just not who I am and that I found Everything in Zen Center quite pleasant and everything, but I just, it was not anything I had any interest in pursuing. And he, you know, he accepted that without any problem. It was funny, though, because afterward I turned to him and I said, but you know, I have to say that any group that embraces David Chadwick as a priest is okay in my book. <laughs> and Lou turned to me and he said, you'd be surprised at how many people around here feel that way. Well, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. I remember the first fire drill while I was working in the auto shop. And all the sirens are going off and everybody's running around. And if somebody ran past me, I just said, what, did somebody make a break for it? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, did you, you, you knew uh, Richard Baker, who was the abbot then? Uh, yes. And um, I remember one thing he said to you, uh, a I think he said it to you, or he said it to you and Darlene when you were together. Do you remember? Well, I know he said that we were the most alike of any siblings he had ever met. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, I mean, and he just went right down to the limp. <laughs> oh, right down to the limp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, did you get along with him? Yeah, actually, I got along with his, uh, uh, what's his name, his brother-in-law better, but... Brother? Was it his brother or brother-in-law? Brother-in-law, you mean Tim? Yeah. Yeah, that's Jenny's brother, his wife's brother. Uh-huh. Tim Brackett. I, um... I was fine with Dick. I found him a little pretentious and self-important, but you know that's that's what he was doing. I mean, it was appropriate to to what he was doing, so I didn't find it to be terribly obnoxious or anything. I know that when the scandal broke, that Darlene felt very personally betrayed by him in that he had been her confidant. And she felt betrayed. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I, I mean, I idolize Darlene. If Darlene doesn't like you, I don't like you. <laughs> and 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 I do remember Dick's last day at Green Gulch. Mm. He was pulling out of the parking lot in his BMW as I was walking by, and the BMW sounded like a bucket of bolts. And I turned to him and I said, Dick, you got to get that car work done. And and he looked at me and he said, well, I can't afford it now. And I just smiled and said, that's okay, Dick, I'll give you my Zen student rate. Um, Well, it, it just, it's so nice working with people who, who you can just you can just straight out deal with, like um, when Mark was work leader. Yeah, Mark Alexander. Yeah, um, I remember going to Mark one day and saying, "Mark, you need to double my hour hourly salary." <laughs> and he said, "And he said, why is that?" And I said, "Because." The amount of work you'll get out of me at twice the money will exceed. <laughs> you know, the work you will get out of me will exceed the money you're paying, and you will save money. And he said, okay. Huh. Well, you were probably getting very little. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, you know, if you are anything but a slave there, you're making a lot of money. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, um I remember when you and and uh and Diane at the time you all were living down at Muir Beach right next to what what's that woman's name? Uh Annie. Annie. And uh you had it Ann Balfour. Ann Balfour and and she had a son. What was his name? He was. The, he had three sons. Yeah. Uh, but the one who lived there was um. God, I'm trying to remember. He he was uh, a little autistic. Yeah, right. He ended up working as a mechanic's helper for me. Oh, what what you don't remember his name? God, I even visited them in in 2010, my cross country trip. In and uh, in New Mexico. Yeah. Wow. Annie's dead now. She died a couple three years ago. Oh. But yeah, uh, the way that happened was um, she Annie put a uh, a notice at the mailboxes offering the cabin behind her place up for rent and rent was negotiable and I went to talk to her and when she found out I was a mechanic my official rent for that cabin in Mir Beach was $100 a month in keeping her two VW buses alive why did she need two VW buses one was transportation the other was a flatbed one of those rare VW flatbeds oh yeah 
do you, do you remember how you uh, arranged uh, to have a uh, nominal uh, uh, electric bill there? I think for bo- yeah. both of you. Well, no, actually, it was um, it was pretty much for her because I because she was using electric heat and I had a little Ben Franklin stove. Oh yeah, right. Whereas she had her fireplace was that monster made by Junior, and and it, you know if you weren't gonna you know build a fire to keep going for a month, it wasn't worth it. What happened was that the, I forget, oh, I remember. What I did was I, I pulled the, the seal off the meter. And, oh, I remember. It's because Annie was running her space heaters. She blew the meter out. So I went out, I broke the seal, I opened up the meter, and the the wiring was really fucked, you know, because it was ancient. So I went and got some, you know, proper wire for it, and I shunted one side of the meter so that the meter was only registering one leg, so that Basically, the meter was registering half of what was going on. And then what I did is I took the burnt, decrepit wires and I hung them from a little string from the meter and put a note on the meter saying, these wires burned out and that's why the seal was broken. I replaced the wires and they put a new seal on it without looking so it was a sealed meter that was only registering half. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't you actually run a wire from the pole? No, I just bypassed the meter in the meter box. Oh, I see. I had the wrong idea back then. Oh, that that might have come from the the story of my cross country trip in '74, in which my electric power was. Um, two big uh, uh, alligator clips with spikes and I'd climb up telephone poles and spike into the line. Wow. And and it would just put... That's how I got cross country. Did, did you use batteries or did you have to do that when you were stationary? I did that when I was stationary. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's nervy. Huh. Well... Um, Me? Nervy? Oh, come on. (laughs) So how long were you uh, working at Green Gulch? Uh, Not very long because I I got there. Well, at first I was working in the city. Um, The first job I did for Zen Center was I rewired the sewing machines at Elias. Really? Huh. Yeah, I did several things in the city center, and then I went out to Green Gulch. Huh. And that's when, and that coincided with Diane getting a place on Sea Cape. Oh, is that is that when Diane moved from the city to there? Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, I looked at that house with her, and uh, she looked at a little room down below, and that she was planning on renting this little room at the bottom of the house, and I asked the landlady, how much does the whole house go for? And she said that I said, Diane, uh, if you move here, I won't need to have an apartment in the city, and uh, uh, so... Uh, we'll take the money from both our rents, and that'll be enough for this house. So she rented the whole <laughs> house. Uh, and she, she continued to live at Gringos. I mean, at Muir Beach above Gringos for years. She moved a lot. Huh. That That's where I went after my motorcycle accident. Oh, my I went from the hospital to convalesce there on Sea Cape. At, at Diane's and, place? Yeah. I remember when Diane visited me in the hospital. Hmm. She was, she was very upset and it wasn't concerned. And, and I remember I just interjected and just said to her, I, I just looked at her. I said, Diane, if I told you, that I have resources and I'm not intending for you to nurse me back out. Do you think you could be nice to me? <laughs> and she turned and she said, well, if that's the case, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> but you did go to her place afterwards. Right. Right. But, but I made it clear that, you know, that, that, that was just where I was going from the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. That was a serious accident. Uh, the, the uh, It was beyond Stinson Beach. Uh, do you remember what happened? Uh, you know, pilot error. I was just, I was going around the bend right in front of the Bolina School. Yeah. And then, in, you know, at the end of Stinson. And I was on that curve and hit the guardrail and screwed up both ways, first in hitting the guardrail and second in not getting my leg up fast enough. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was fun. I was visited in the hospital by a group that wanted that guardrail taken out. And indeed, if that guardrail hadn't have been there, I would have just ended up in a field going, shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. And I, I talked, uh, there was a woman at, uh, who was a waitress at, uh, the Sand Dollar in Stinson, uh, uh, and Katrinka was, was, uh, a waitress at Sand Dollar back then, uh, who said she was, uh, you know, she was a paramedic or something. She said she was the first person to you. Uh, and she said, Yeah, I remember that. She was great. I real I love her because because where you know they take you the mountain road to 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 Marin General so you go over the Bolinas Road yeah which is all twists and turns and I've got a dangling limb and that is not a fun road with a dangling limb wow it was great because I'm there I'm there in the back and I'm I'm going. 
this isn't like the movies at all. <laughs> you know, I'm not going numb or passing out. This just hurts like hell. And she said, yeah, yes, that's the way it really is. And she said, if it's any consolation, the more pain you're in, the better shape you're in, because it means all your nerves are alive and working. Yeah. And But at a certain point, we're hitting bumps and going around curves. And she turned to me and she said, come on, you're a biker. You can teach me some words I don't know. Come on, start really coughing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I liked her. Uh, actually, she's the waitress I was closest to, not Katrinka. Katrinka and I would just say hello. Uh, uh, well, I, you know, another thing I remember is that it took a long time for your leg to heal, and it was very hard. They had to do various things. There, uh to try to get it to heal. I was like 10 months on crutches. I really remember, I also remember that time in, um, there was a party in near Tam Junction. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm there, we're all there at the party. And at a certain point, I had had plenty to drink. And you came over to me and said, would you please sit down? Everybody here is waiting for you to fall over. And there's nothing more pathetic than a drunk cripple. <laughs> <laughs> That's at a party at Tam Junction, huh? That's funny. Yeah. Um, you know, an, another uh, contact you had uh, in the Zen world was you lived in the room in the back of Steve Stuckey's home in Mill Valley for quite some time. Right. That's when Greg, my stepson, moved out here, and Steve Stuckey and I were single fathers together. Oh, yeah. Boy, you and Steve Stuckey, what a combination. Uh, really? I remember, I remember when I asked good old uptight Mennonite, Steve Stuckey, if he minded if I grew pot in the backyard. And he said, let me think about it. Uh -huh. And he came to me the next day and he said, well, he said, on one hand, you know, I, I, I'm really against the drugs, but he said, on the other hand, I like the idea of you growing it for yourself, so yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, he was very, very open-minded and tolerant. My God, he had Rene Pate staying in a room. I mean, M Rene Pate uh, <laughs> was there. He was like on parole from prison, or if that wasn't prison, he'd been in some. Maybe that was before prison, but he'd been in in some sort of trouble. I mean, Rene was. But he had a violent streak, and well, when you know, when Steve came in and saw Renee shooting up, he said, "Renee, we had an agreement; you wouldn't take drugs." And Renee said, "But it's the weekend." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another time, Steve sees Renee. He he's putting on a gun. He has he's wearing a gun on a on a shoulder strap, right? Steve said, Renee, 
we, you know, you can't stay in this house and have a gun. He said, well, a guy needs protection, you know. I mean, they're just these two different worlds, much further than you and Steve. Uh, but uh, you and Steve, I mean, th- that's quite a leap there because Steve was like, uh, he, he was pretty righteous dude, but he was actually tolerant of the kid smoking pot. I re- but did, did, re- remember, remember when my father bought me that gallon of wild turkey and that was the night you saw the, the v- UFO? No, I don't remember it. Oh, oh yeah, you drank a whole bunch of wild turkey and saw a UFO on your way back to Muir Beach. But in any case, that was during the flood. And, you know, and we had like two feet of water going through the house. I do remember as that. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, my most vivid memory of that was you and I were in my room listening to music and we were sitting on the floor and you turned to me and you went, that's weird. And I said, what? And you jumped into the air. And when you came down on the floor, water squirted from the baseboards. And you said, I thought we were floating. (laughs) I said, what? I thought we were floating. Uh-huh. Well, more than that. And and you detected that we weren't on the ground. <laughs> wow. That's... But what was funny was after we drank all that and you went home, I got Steve Stuckey drunk on his ass. Really? Oh, I never. I'm... Yes. Wow. What a corrupt. And that, that... we were. Never saw him. Never saw him in any. Thing, but a very clear state. That's pretty good. Oh, we were sitting in the kitchen with, it wasn't just with two and a half feet of water below us, but we're sitting in the kitchen, you know, knee high in water that's flowing. It's coming in the kitchen door, going through the middle room, into my room and out my door. There's there's a channel going. Yeah. And and I'm you know, and I'm giving shots to Steve and Steve's really drunk. Yeah. So at a certain point Steve looks at me and he, he's got this horrible panicked look on his face and he says, I'm gonna be sick. And I just looked at him and I gestured to the water flowing by and I went and the problem is what? <laughs> <laughs> and he just turned his head and barfed into the water, and it went by, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, you know what I remember most about that? Is going into your room, waiting in water, and you're listening to music, and the electric cord is going down into the water. And plugged in. And, and I keep being told that somewhere there's a photograph of that, and I've never seen it. Huh, that would have been good. But you would have had to have a video with uh, sound <laughs> that th- there was actually, you were, you were hooking right. up to electrical outlets underwater 
that you were standing <laughs> in and and I said how how could this be this I didn't think this was possible then and, and what'd you say and I said California has incredibly soft water and water as people don't realize water does not conduct electricity the minerals in water conduct electricity distilled water will not pass yeah that was quite a flood uh yeah yeah and 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 you know and it 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 shows the uh the uh, advantages of having um soft divorces because we ended up taking a canoe over to Steve's wife's place across the street. Oh, right. His ex-wife. Right, right. Yeah. But they lived in proximity for the kids, just like Christina and I lived in proximity for the kids. Ah, yeah, right. Well, um, have you lived... Um, have you? Did you have any other contact with... Zen Center people. Oh, yeah. Poker. Poker. Years of poker. Now, now, what people around Years Zen Center? Peter Rudnick, and you still see him for poker. Right. Peter Rudnick was just here. Oh, you, you played at your place? Yeah, we played at my place today. It, it rotates. Huh. It rotates between Berkeley, Mirror Beach, and Sebastopol. Ah, uh, who in Sebastopol? Um, Loring. Oh, Loring. Yeah, Loring Vogel. How, how long were you at Steve's? Uh, a year. Is that all? God, I just remember being over there so much. And, you know, I just dropped by on my way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was there for a year. And then I met Christina. And Christina and I started living together in San Rafael. Well, what happened then? We got married, had kids. And now you're in uh, Berkeley, Berkeley. And, and you manage the apartment house there. So you actually, you do have a job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because you know how the joke used to be living in Marin that in order to live in Marin, you have to live in Marin. No, I don't understand. That there was no way to actually break into the real estate market. Oh, you have to have already been living there. Right. 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 So despite having, you know, 20 years of contacts, when I went cross country in 2010 and got back, it, you know, I mean, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't find a place in Marin. And I, I ended up in Bolinas, um, renting from, uh, Huey Lewis's mother. Oh, right. Magda. Magda. Yeah. I remember that. And then I did some house sitting and then I found this place on Craigslist of all things. Huh. They were advertising for a building manager and, uh, and I, you know, I had a pre-interview over the phone, and the guy said to me, he said, well, you know, you're over in Marin, he said, and I hate to make you make a trip. We've already got a couple of qualified candidates. 
And I just said to him, I said, yeah, and your qualified candidates are probably students. They're going to be carousing on the weekends. They've got their studies and everything. I don't have an outside job. I live on Social Security. Um, I'm going to be at the place all the time. And I interview very, very well. And I said, the only problem you're going to have with me is I'm going to work slower, but you're not paying me by the hour. So what do you care? <laughs> and I got the job. <laughs> that was a long time ago. 11 years. Ah. Well, you and Darlene come from, where were you born? Columbus, Ohio. And as Darlene used to say to me, she said, you know, our parents wanted two bright, sophisticated children and got them and had no fucking idea what to do with them. <laughs> I remember your father. <laughs> did did I know your mother? Um, She made it to Green Gulch then I'm... Uh, when uh, Ethan was born. Oh, yeah, Darlene and Tony's son, Ethan. Huh. Uh, and and what did your father do? My father was a salesman, a lifelong salesman. Two of the, the things that really come to my mind, because my father and I didn't get along, but I kept hearing the stories about what a great friend my father was. And I always was sort of jealous that I wasn't his friend and that I was his son because from what I heard he was a great friend but he was a really shitty father uh -huh. but I remember he he, he was self-employed his whole life and uh, when I was like eight he lost his business because of illness because it was a one man show and he was in the hospital for a while mm. and so he had to go to work for someone else for the one of the first times in his life, he went to work for his biggest competitor, who, of course, was happy to have it. But I don't know what happened that day, but clearly it had a bad day. And he gave me advice I'm sure no other Jewish boy ever got from his father. But my father came home from work, and he looked at me and he said, son, don't ever get a job. <laughs> That's point, great. That's but, great. But the poignant part is how he followed it up. He said, son, don't ever get a job. When you get a job, you're letting someone tell you what you're worth. Don't ever let anyone tell you what you're worth. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. The, the other great thing my father said to me one time, he was about he was about my age when he said this to me. He had just come out of the bathroom from shaving. I was visiting. And, you know, he had clearly been looking at his face for a while. And he just turned to me and he said, son, I've been waiting my whole life for a disguise like this. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> now... Here, here, I have the, what, what What did your father sell? Anything, anything and everything. Um, when I was growing up, he was, you know, the, the, the consummate traveling salesman. He had a van and he had clothing and appliances 
And it was one of those deals where if he didn't have it, he could get it. He charged more than the local stores, but he brought it to your door. And more importantly, he gave you credit. Uh And he was on your doorstep the day the welfare checks came out to get his two dollars. Well, I have the impression he made quite a bit of money because he lost quite a bit of money. And why don't you tell us about that? Well, I was sick of Vegas before I was old enough to get in the casinos. I mean, that was family vacation, was Vegas. Mm -hmm. Darlene and I always used to say, no, no, take us to Monte Carlo. You want to gamble? Fine. Take us to Monte Carlo. Well, I I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he, he... He won and he lost. I remember right after he died, Darlene said to me, she said, well, you know, I guess we'll never see Mallorca. And I'm like, what? And she said, oh, you didn't know, did you? I know what? And she said, remember when mom and dad went to Spain and mom really fell in love with it? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, dad bought a villa in Mallorca with some winnings. And I'm like, what? I almost inherited a villa in Mallorca? Well, what happened? And she said, you know, he fell on hard times and sold it. But, you know, there for a little while, we were in line for a villa in Mallorca. (laughs) Wow. And and I just turned to him and I said, what nasty things did I do to you that you had to tell me that? Uh-huh. <laughs> that I don't have a villa in Mallorca. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, so <laughs> what did you do with your father's ashes? Some are on, on my bookshelf. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Others I took to Las Vegas. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm going to scatter them in the casino, right? Yeah. So I figured you had him in life. You can have him in death. So I expected a commotion. And I was, you know me, I'm not shy. You know, I I was all prepared to be dragged out, kicking and screaming. Nobody got near me. And we all know every square inch is covered by cameras. And as I'm doing this, and there's nobody, if anything, people are avoiding me. I realized I'm not that bright. People do this all the time. And they learned that we kick and scream and yell when you approach us. And they just sweep the carpet after we leave. Huh. Um, Do you remember getting a room there and what room you got and how much you paid? No, I remember I went to Circus Circus because I knew it was cheap, but that's not where I spread the ashes. All right. Here's what you told me. You said you went to a, you know, hotel gambling casino and you told them. uh, Right. uh, Huh? At MGM. 
And you told them you were your Was father's son and he had died. Oh, oh no, that's a, that is a completely different. I, I used to meet up regularly with my best friend from high school. Yeah. We would meet in Vegas because he owned a stereo store. He was my Sony connection. He owned a stereo store and he would go to consumer electronics show and he would pay for my flight and hotel because he, he had me bogusly on his payroll and he could take me off his taxes. And so the only time we got together at all was we'd meet up in Vegas. But the Consumer Electronics Show is at New Year's. And, you know, Vegas is a big deal at New Year's. So I fly to Vegas. He picks me up at the airport. He says, I really screwed up. And I'm like, what? And he said, well, I didn't make any of the re- – I just spaced it out. I didn't make any of the reservations in time. I think we're going to end up in Sparks. And I said, no, let's go to the MGM. And he said – I've been to the MGM. And I said, no, no, let's go to the MGM. We go to the MGM. I ask for the manager. My father had been dead for like three or four years at this point. I go to the manager and I I said to him, I said, look, I'm not trying to pull anything. But my friend and I were trying to get a room in Vegas. And my father's Joseph Cohen of Columbus, Ohio. So he goes off in his office. He comes out. We not only get a room, we got full comp, meals, everything. Yeah, that's what I remember. As a matter of fact, yeah. And as a matter of fact, my friend and I are having dinner for free in the restaurant. And my friend turns to me and says, God, I knew your father was a gambler. But he said, I had no idea. And I just looked at him and I said, yeah, I wonder how much this meal really cost me. Right, right. That's the emphasis <laughs> I remember is uh, you, you felt that your inheritance was, uh, was uh, you know, fattened the coffers of, uh, uh, in Vegas. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, and, and did you ever gamble there any? I gamble when I go to Vegas. I'll, I'll you know, I'll do a little slot. I'll do a little this and that. And if I have 50 bucks for an entire trip, it's a lot of money. I'm, I'm just, I'm not in any way bitten by bugs. You have this thing we do. We go to Reno. We see like a show we wanted to see. Well, you know, they were running things with the train and the MGM in Reno where you could go to Reno for a weekend, see a show for only a few bucks more than it costs you to be home. And Christina and I, we had children, we're doing that pretty regularly. And we found that, you know, a great adjunct to our trips was we get pitched for timeshares. And, you know, and we do it because it was usually like 50 bucks or something. And, you know, and we're not going to buy. And, you know, so it wastes a couple hours of our time. But we're getting, you know, 25 an hour, we're fine. Yeah. yeah. So we'd, we'd let them pitch us. And as a matter of fact, I can usually get us out early. I do things like, say, 
what is the APR? And they'd always say they didn't know. And I'd say, well, you know, it's against federal law for you not to know. And they couldn't wait to get me out of there. Ha, ha, ha. That's funny. Yeah, I've done that. Uh, it's very tedious. <laughs> very tedious. That's done all over the world, trying to tell, sell your timeshares. And you've got to give them like two hours to give you a pitch. Oh, and Darlene and I got dragged with our father for a timeshare pitch in Acapulco. <laughs> yeah, I, I had it done in... Uh, 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 down there, uh, Puerto Vallarta. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. So, uh, yeah, I never gamble a cent when I'm there, but I, I've stayed a lot in Vegas and Reno going through, uh, because it's sort of fun for a day or two. Uh, yeah, it's fun for a day or two, but but especially if you don't have the bug, because then you know there. There's nothing worrisome. Yeah. You know, the other thing about my father, you know, being a high roller was that, you know, when I finally did get to be of age, it got more interesting to go to Vegas because we'd go to shows. And because my father was, you know, a high roller, you know, the first five rows in any show, none of those people are paying. Uh-huh. They're all comped. I saw Roy and Siegfried sitting where I had my palms on the stage feeling for the trap door and couldn't feel it. They were amazing. Uh-huh. But, but the other thing about Vegas shows that you don't think of unless you're there. And that is, okay, so you're in a Vegas show, so sooner or later, you've got your high-kicking nude chorus girls. Ah. Well, think about it for a minute. They are directly above you because you're on the edge of the stage. They are dancing their hearts out, sweating like little pigs and kicking their legs. And you learn very quickly to put your napkin over your drink. Uh, <laughs> wow. It's it's part of the front row for for a nude review that people don't think about. Wow, I've I've never uh, done that. I've been I I've watched some shows for a little bit from behind. I was very impressed with the quality of the dancers and how much energy they were putting into it. But I never paid for a show. Uh, but that type of show, I haven't been to some other, I can't even remember. Wow. Hey, uh, you didn't go into the Army. Uh, what What did you do? <laughs> um, I had the time of my life not doing it. Oh, please tell me. Okay, um, it all started when, when I knew organically that I was never going in the army. And the question was whether I was going to get away with it or whether I was going to go to jail. But those were the two options. Army was not an option. So first I just didn't register. And 
they find out about that pretty quickly because, you know, Midwest back in the 60s, early 60s, that's the kind of things that get reported. But I know how bureaucracies work. So when I got the really nasty letter about five years in jail and a $10,000 fine, you didn't register. I just sent them back a letter going, of course I registered. What are you talking about? And I got a letter back. Oh, we're terribly sorry. Come in and register. And so that time I did because, you know, they're looking at me. So I registered. Um, what was it? Uh, oh, yeah, I got drafted. Oh. And, um, yeah. And, but I, but I refused induction. Um, I was, I think, the second person ever in Ohio to refuse induction. Really? And, uh, yeah, I was, I was extremely political at the time. And I mean, to the point that the day before I refused induction, I cut off my shoulder-length hair, shaved, and wouldn't go anywhere without wearing a suit because I knew the press was going to be hounding me. And I wanted, I didn't want people to be able to go, oh, that, that damn hippie. Huh. Um, I locked out. I got this, um, I got a, a nationally known labor lawyer doing his pro bono. Um, and when I went in to see him, you know, he even said to me, he said, I was expecting some weirdo. And he said, you know, you've got this really well thought out and all. And he said, but, you know, he said, I don't really know anything. And I said, that's okay. I said, I've been in touch with the American Friend Service Committee, and they're prepared to send you everything you need. And I've got a phone number for you. And he went, great. But that isn't actually how I got out of that was I was, until I I was arrested for refusing induction and not allowed to leave Ohio, I had been living in New York, uh, working with national mobilization. And I, against and the war, national mobilization against the war. Yeah, no, national mobilization against the war in Vietnam. Right. And... And I just went upstairs to the Lawyers Guild and talked to them, and they told me this great way to get out of the Army, which was simply, they said, start writing your draft board, you know, registered letters, return receipt requested. And he said, just make sure every letter's like 10 pages. And he said, copy it straight out of New Left Notes. You know, make it as boring as humanly possible. And he said, and along around the 10th day, on page three of paragraph five, make a request for an appeal. They won't read it. They won't give you the appeal that you have a legal right to. And your induction is illegal. Huh. So that's what I did. And indeed, I, it got thrown out. It was dismissed. I mean, I didn't even go to trial. It just charged, you know, uh, because I presented myself, I refused induction because I believe my induction to be an illegal act because I was not given this, this appeal. And 
But what they don't tell you is that 31 days to the day after you do that, you get a new 1A. And 31 days to the day after you get the new 1A, you get a new induction order. And it all starts over again. So you did it again? Well, I went a little tangential. Since it had been a year uh, since they had tried to induct me, they had to give me another physical. Uh, And so I took multiple hits of acid and went on that physical. Hmm. And really had a good time, I have to say. It, It was the most enjoyable exchange with the Army I ever had. But the the day pretty much ended with a, I couldn't believe it. It was like, it was out of a movie when um, Marine Sergeant Muldoon with an accent you could cut with a knife took me in his office and he said, son, you know you're in trouble when they say son. Son, would you mind if we sent you for a psychiatric evaluation? Well, I just looked at him and I said, well, do I have a choice? And he said, no. And I said, well, then I guess I don't mind, do I? So they sent me to a shrink. I saw his report. The shrink was pretty cool because I just went into the shrink and I said, look, you know, I told him what I told you at the very beginning of this. I said, the army is not a choice. I said, you're deciding whether I go to jail or not because I'm not going in the army. And I saw his report. He said, I had an extreme authority problem. (laughs) 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 But, but in any case, he wrote me up and I got a one, one, you know, which is a temporary psychiatric. Yeah. So it's only good for a year. So the day my one, Y was up, I called my draft board and and I said, I'm calling because my one Y is up today. And and I wanted to give you my, you know, all my current contact information. And I said, and, and the reason I want to give you all that information is because I can't tell you how bleak this past year has been without you motherfuckers to fight. I just, my life has had absolutely no meaning, no purpose. I just, I don't know what to do with myself. And I can't wait to start in with you motherfuckers again. I never, ever, ever heard from them again. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get a 4Y when I turned 35. I just never heard from again. I used to tell that story when I was draft counseling. And I said, what I learned here was that there's this very, very, very thin line of being more trouble than your worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you make too much noise, they have to put you in jail. And if they, you don't make enough, they think they can win you over. It's a very thin line, but I walked it. Yeah. Yeah. I I I was successful. Uh, I've always thought a neat book would be how I got out of the army and just just have 
stories like yours, because I've heard a lot of great stories. Uh, and you know the you know the peanut butter one, don't you? Peanut butter. Yeah. No, tell me. Uh, the story that the story that used to go around that you know it's an urban myth. Nobody knows if it's true about the guy who gets drafted, and he goes into his physical, and prior to his physical, he takes an entire jar of creamy peanut butter and smears it across his ass. Uh. <laughs> so, when it, so when it comes time for the testicle inspection, everybody drops their pants, and it's, what's that? And he takes a handful and eats it and goes, peanut butter. Gone. <laughs> yeah. I like the World War I like the World War Two story. What? About, you know, they're rubber stamping everybody, yes, and people come along and you know, and one A, one A, one A, and finally this guy comes through and he's doesn't have any arms. He what? And he doesn't have any arms. Oh, yeah. And like he said, the sergeant, he goes, four off, no arms, right? And the sergeant, no, no, stand over there. So he stands over there, more 1A, 1A, 1A. A blind guy comes through, and he turns to the other guy, and he goes, you, you tell this guy what to do. (laughs) (laughs) You come from Ohio. Did you go to any college? I went to Boston State College. Um, I've, I've done a lot of advanced learning and all, but I can't, I can't do classrooms. I was a D minus student and I was the alternate for um, the uh, National Merit Scholarship. Because I can do tests, I can't do class. Uh-huh. I. I took the college level examination program uh-huh. and took it up to uh, took it up to a second semester um, junior, mm. and then did, and then did one semester of class and dropped out because I just I couldn't do it. Yeah, that's just not where I learned. You know, I was I was ADD. I was ADD in the days. When ADD was, you're not working up to your potential. That was ADD. Me too. I understand that. Um, right, and I had and I had adolescent onset migraines. You're just trying to get out of school. Oh, that's terrible. Well, is, is there uh, any ground we haven't covered that you would like to touch on? Well, I love the fact that. Everybody always assumed that, that I was going to be very Buddhist because of Darlene. Whereas whenever Darlene and I sat around, we joked about the fact that we used to joke that between us, we had the entire universe covered because I, I dealt in the physical and she held in the spiritual. <laughs> uh. That we were totally complimentary. <laughs> well, you know, also, there's another Zen group you were around some. Uh, it's John Terrence because you'd come out and we'd have, we, we had a weekly dinner 
I was living at John Terrence with, oh, you know, like up to eight people once a week for a while there. That went on for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And and you'd even every once in a while you'd come join us for the meditation. You'd say, I can't meditate. Uh <laughs> I remember I remember sitting around with you and John Terrence and John asking me like, you know, why I wasn't a Zen student. And I said, Well, for one, I'm you know, I'm I'm a disciple of Paulo Freire and I don't believe in the teacher student relationship. And John just looked at me and said, I don't have a problem with that. You said you're a disciple of who? Pablo Frere. Uh, who's that? Uh, the guy who wrote up Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Huh. My. Well, John's read, John Tarrant has read everything in the world. He's one of the best educated and foreign people I ever knew. Frere's, Frere's basic thing is that as a Westerner, if you go to a, quote, backward people and you walk in and say, what can I do to help you? You've just established there's nothing you can do to help them. Uh -huh. That that how can you possibly, you, you know, you need to see what they what they need help with. Maybe your idea of what they need help with is entirely different than theirs. You know, maybe it's an outgrowth. Of, maybe it's an outgrowth of my inability to deal with classrooms. But uh, I'm not, not big on teachers either. I mean, I think we all have things to teach each other, and I acknowledge that that there are people who are gifted in imparting that knowledge. But you know, up to a point. Well, there's really nothing you're saying that's incompatible with uh, my understanding of Buddhism. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, and and but in the final analysis, for me, it's sort of a uh, why bother? You know, I sort of, you know, I I don't even. It's sort of like what Dawkins talks about his 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 being uh, uh, an atheist. That it's it's nothing he has to think about. It's not anything he participates. Who, in. who said who? Dawkins. Dawkins says. Oh, Doc, Stephen Dawkins. That it's it's not something you have to actively do to be an atheist, and that's it's sort of how. I mean, it it isn't. When I say it's my mindset, it's nothing I think about. It's not like I'm thinking in opposition. It's just. I'm not a joiner. I just, I think, I think I'm here to figure it out, you know, and, and if I find things along the way that make it easier to figure it out, great, but I don't want to be taught. <laughs> uh -huh. I want to figure it out. Yeah. I think that's what it's about is figuring it out. Well, yeah, that's what Buddha said. Um, he said, don't take my word for it. Investigate for yourself uh, and he said be a light unto yourself uh, yeah the stuff you're saying is not incompatible with Buddhism I mean I don't know what Buddhism is I was just looking at a quote from uh, Suzuki you know Junior Suzuki was my teacher he said uh, you know I've been thinking about uh, how to 
understand our way better. And he said, I've come to the conclusion there's no Buddhism and there's no Zen. Well, see, my feeling, <laughs> I'll take it one step further. There is there no Buddhism, no Zen, but there's no, no Buddhism, no, no Zen. Um, yeah, I think that's also quite compatible. So, so yeah. So then my, so then I fall back on, on, you know, where I came from in the beginning, which is, yeah. So, well, and this is clearly why most of my friends are Buddhists and I'm, I'm more comfortable around Buddhists is because my ideas are completely compatible. And the only thing preventing me from being a Buddhist is because my attitude is why bother? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> um, I remember early on at Tassajara. Oh, I, I think this when I was head monk, 74, uh, a guy came to Tassajara as a guest student for, you know, three days or something. And then he talked to me. He said, he said, uh, uh, I think his name was Pierce Johnson, if maybe he said he was the, the uh path the the, uh, the 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 chaplain for the five uh, colleges <laughs> at in Pasadena I can't remember what they are Claremont colleges maybe um and he said he he goes out and joins various groups to see what they're like and so he can understand and he said every one of them he asked people you know what have what have you gotten out of this what are you doing this and that and he said, and they all say, you know, well, I, I've gotten enlightened. I've met God. I've solved all the problems of my life, I'm, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I go around here and ask people, and they say, oh, I don't know. Uh, but, well, what's Buddhism? Well, I'm not really sure. Uh, well, uh, have you benefited from this? Well, maybe. Um, he said, well, tell me, would you explain what this is about? And I said, no, I really can't, but I'm very pleased to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, and, and you know, the, it, it seems to me that the adage that that represents is, is the whole thing that, you know, it's a horrible thing to know things because when you know something, all learning stops because you know it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you say you know something, what you're really saying is I can learn nothing more about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting you brought up Richard Dawkins because, you know, he has written and thought a lot about religion and atheism and all that. Uh, and um, he's a little, uh, you know, he really has gotten into it in depth somewhat, a little bit, but still mainly what he think what, what it's about is uh, countering the idea of believing in a uh but in, in having strong beliefs and, you know, mainly uh, in there being an uh, 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 individual being uh, that we call God that's like, uh, you know, literalism. Main, almost all the anti-religious stuff I see is they're just countering uh, literalism, which to me is is um, the enemy of actual uh, spiritual practice 
Um, and believing things, believing things is a trap. I mean, you can believe them for a little bit or believe relative things, you know, for a while it's all tentative, but being fixated on something, that's just, I don't know. That's uh, what the Bible calls worshiping graven images. Well, one of the, one of the more interesting things I heard him ever talk about wasn't to do with religion. He was talking about why we haven't contacted anyone uh, in outer space. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he's like, okay, you know, we're talking about incredible distances. But he says, you know, at this point, we also know that there are billions of Goldilocks planets. So really, why? So he said, well, all right, let's take the Earth as an example because it's the only one we've got. So the the trip from running water to a species capable of communicating off-planet is about 4 billion years. And he said, but, but then consider what science is. He said, science is formalized curiosity. And he said, and there is only one end game there. The only thing that will stop science, because its appetite is insatiable, is when it discovers something it can't control and it kills everybody. Yeah. And he said, so he said, so if you take the four billion years it takes to go from running water to being able to communicate off planet to the amount of time it then takes to destroy your society is a geological nanosecond. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we haven't heard from anybody. <laughs> His anger, they all destroy themselves. Right, before they can get discovered. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, various people have various uh, thoughts on that that I will not get into. Yeah, I always thought the the, uh, science versus faith thing that they (laughs) put on you know, TV with debates is, I always thought it was stupid. Yeah. Science versus faith. Yeah, I mean, and and plus, and plus, you know, I mean, the way it's framed, it just makes science another religion. Yeah, well, to me... I mean, uh, because that's how they're approaching it. uh, To me, my understanding... Uh, I mean, religion's a dirty word. I mean, it's a word with too much baggage to use, and so is the word God. But whatever it's called, spiritual Protestant, it's empirical. It's it's scientific. There is absolutely no conflict conflict with science and actual uh, non fairy tale oriented or uh, spiritual practice. There is no possible conflict. Because science is about phenomena. Well, I, I always fall down on the side of science. But on the other hand, when I hear people speaking of science as some great, wonderful, holy thing, I, I remind them that, you know, when they are really the atom bomb, it's a sizable who 
conducted to the testing saying there's definitely a chance that you could ignite the atmosphere. Right. They thought it might. There were there were betting and on it. Basically, the scientists Oppenheimer and Allison will chance it. Right. And and there was it happened again. Finland when they said no hydrogen bomb ocean, you're going to ignite it. And that will will chance it. So that's your wonderful, you know, science will make everything better, people, who who chance blowing up the world twice right. just to see what would happen. Right. I, re- I remember reading about that, you know, because I've, I've had some involvement with uh, anti-nuclear weapons stuff, much more than uh, anti-nuclear power. And... Uh, they, they, no, I, I've said about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the um, you know that Hamlin Piper gun, right? The World Suicide Club. Um, the 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 first a bomb experiment, like you said, there were bets on what they didn't know how big it was going to be. They there were there were some who thought it was going to destroy all of New Mexico. There were some right. who thought it might ignite the atmosphere and just kill everybody on Earth. Uh, uh, but anyway, right. uh, yeah. Hey, so what do you think about climate change? Right. Um, well, what's there to think about? Well, different people think different things. Uh, what, what's your observation? What's happening? You know, my chief concern with climate change is as a parent. Is what? And Jeremiah and I. Have, oh, you're a parent. As Is as a yeah. Jeremiah and I have discussed this and agree not that this will happen, but that probably the only thing that will redeem the human race is that some weather event, some some sort of disaster will decimate the population. Uh, you know, I'm talking like more than 75%. Um, and that, that that event, if nothing else, will buy us another, you know, couple hundred years. Yeah. That's what Lovelock said. Uh, Lovelock, who created the concept of Gaia, that the world was a self-regulating uh, being uh, and... Uh, our right, yes. entity. And I love that when people say, oh, we're just, and people say, oh, we're destroying the earth, we're destroying the earth. No, we aren't. The earth will be just fine. It will find a new paradigm. It will find a new ratio that, that works. It just won't include mammals. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some people that think, I mean, Jerry Brown, um, one of the most far, one of the most visionary politicians, uh, 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 he he thinks vertebrates are uh endangered. Uh, uh, and uh, Lovelock Lovelock said he it's like he said he thought best case was an eighty percent die off of the human yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's just best case. I think it's the only chance. It's just because. We clearly aren't going to do anything. So that's right. I'm sorry, it's up to the planet. Right. It's up to the planet. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. 
Well, see, um, you know, people think they're, they're going to stop climate change by recycling something or. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Uh, that's, just, <laughs> uh, that's just like everybody. Everybody's trying to talk about how great the baby boomers are. And, and the most sobering thing for me with baby boomers is that in recorded history, anyway, and I, I know there's been little civilizations here and there that are exceptions, but I'm talking general rule. We baby boomers are the very, very first generation not to make it better for our kids. Uh-huh. Yeah, the new generation, it, 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 you know, Jeremiah sent me this, this cartoon. It was so great. And it just showed a toilet paper roll with one little square of paper on it. And it said, the baby boomers have done to the world what the person who leaves one square of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty true. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, generationally, and I mean, I've certainly bucked most of the stuff, but it, still, generationally, I'm embarrassed. Um, I'm not baby boomer. I'm I'm the prior generation. Depending, sometimes it, see, baby boomers. Uh, sometimes they started with 1946. I'm 1945, but sometimes they start the count at 45, but I don't think that's fair. I'm silent generation. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we seem to have come to the end, uh, here of the biosphere, not the biosphere, uh, but, uh, uh, the, well, we're pretty much to the end of that. Too. Um, I, I was reading one place that said, you know, even if we, even if we, uh, destroy, you know, at a certain level, uh, down to say mammals, uh, that, uh, we could regenerate the whole thing about 17 times in the, uh, predicted lifespan of the planet. Uh, uh, it could just keep doing that, you know. However, I'm a little worried about, uh, the, the, uh, radioactive material as, um, nuclear power plants, uh, and all the different uses of radioactivity, uh, stop being cooled or, uh, are managed. Um, I mean, how much is there? I mean, the earth can absorb a lot. Uh, but I, I'm wondering about that and the chemical, uh, pollution, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the number of microplastics now, uh, that are already inside human beings is very, very high. And, uh. Oh, yeah. Of course, you, you know, don't you, that you have more bacteria cells in you than human cells? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know that, but that's not bad. That's normal. <laughs> uh, it's that we're getting, um, we're getting, but not, not just microplasty. I mean, there's old things like mercury. Uh, years ago, uh, they were, they were catching tuna 
in, in uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, they were catching tuna in the ocean to test them for mercury. And the level being so high, it was actually, if they threw the dead tuna in the water, they were, it was, uh, it was already classified as hazardous waste. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, cause it was one of my favorite, favorite fish to eat. I remember got a 20 year period where you couldn't eat swordfish. Oh, why was that? Well, poison, mercury. Yeah. Well, it's, the mercury is mainly from coal, isn't it? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was. Oh, okay. and and actually, you you bring up the the the, the, the waters you stuff with the water. You know, water's going to be the new oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been hearing that for years. Uh, but yeah. Oh yeah. Wars over water and stuff like that. I'm God. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, that friend of uh, Frank Kilmer's. Oh God, I can't think. He was a younger guy, and uh, Frank ended up stealing his girlfriend or something. In any case, he uh, he and I did a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, California agricultural distribution. Uh huh. Yes. And his day job was he ran a solar company. Uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, he required he retired from agricultural distribution a number of years ago because his biggest client was Saudi Arabia. And whereas he knew if he got busted here, here would slap his hands and he'd never get back in Saudi Arabia. And he was making too much money there to keep doing the illegal thing. Uh-huh. But, but he made the point that his biggest client for solar power was Saudi Arabia. They know the oil's going away. Uh-huh. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, another thing, another thing, you know, things would be worse. Except I remember when I read this, I read, I must have read this 10, 15 years ago, that the Saudis have been on top of irrigation for, for, you know, first centuries. But as technology improved, the Saudis know exactly how much water their crops are going to need according to how much sun they're getting. And they have solar panels to measure the amount of sun coming in. Well, of course, they keep records. And their records over a period of 20 years show sunlight, that the sun is not as bright as it was 15 years ago because of pollution. So so that. So that global warming would have happened even faster if we didn't fuck up the air. <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, you know, where there's been tremendous pollution, like in India, uh, that, that that's You know, I, I was reading. I, I read an article on why are some of the places on Earth uh, hotter and colder, and this and that, and that was one of the factors that pollution can keep it. <laughs> colder but meanwhile people are getting sick below 
So, um, how's your memory? How's my memory? Um, I find yeah that that I can remember things from the past. I mean, you know, including fifty years ago, much better than most people I know. But um, but short term, no. Not just. I mean, you know, I have to double check to make sure I have my pants on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but you know, I mean, you know, I'm seeing a neurologist for all the problems I've been having lately, and you know, they ask you about your memory, and I say to them, I said, well, for one, I can't remember whether I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And and that I've been this way my whole life. I mean. I have this sense that it's getting worse, but it's a sense. I can't back it up because mm. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mine is mine has definitely gotten worse, but not in a bad way. It's all right. We don't need to know all that stuff anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I get hung up on names and yeah. shit like that, but that's the the stuff I need to know. Yeah. You know, the only the only time my memory really gets in the way is like leaving the house without something I need, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson recently, uh you know, on some major like news show talking about something and he went, um, what's that um uh that person or something you know uh you know uh, or what's that thing and it was some very basic word and he just <laughs> couldn't think of it and i thought i understand that and i thought oh this is gonna be a problem for him he has to be on top of it all the time i thought he should just he should just confront it and just say that as he's getting older he's having like i consider it like having wide out spilled over the text that I'm reading now. <laughs> I'm going, whoops. Well, there's well you, you know what I heard put forth? And, you know, and I mean, on one hand, it's so much shit, but it's it's nice to think about. They said that the reason older people can't come up with things, you know, right off the tip of their tongue is we've got a lot more files to go through. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I hear that. But I think some of the files are also empty. Uh, uh, you think there's there's disc corruption? Huh? Yeah, um, Lou Richmond's description of coming out of being deep in a coma for a long time was like that, and I, I use it all the time. It's like, you know, if your, your speech and everything and your memory. If you think of it like streets with houses, you go in the house, there's a room, then there's file cabinets in it, and you open one of the drawers, one of the file cabinets, and you pull out a file folder, and you open it up, because it's going to give you the word that you're going to say next, and boink, it's empty. Um, <laughs> uh, I've experienced that. <laughs> um, but mainly, yeah, on short-term stuff. Uh, Mark Alexander once told me, a proper noun start going at 35. I don't know where he got that, but that's always seemed about right to me. Uh, but, um, 
You know, some places it doesn't matter so much here, remembering names, uh, Japan, remembering names. You, you can use other words. Uh, uh, you know, I, I just remember it. I remember in Japan, it was just never a problem having, like, if you have a friend come up, you can't remember their name. You're talking to somebody else. Uh, and you want to, don't want to be rude or you can't enter. It's all taken care of somehow. I don't know. I can remember that. And here it's not a problem. Well, you know, Mark, Mark, my trick for that was that I actually sat down and forced myself to memorize the term nominal aphasia. Right. Right. And, and so when I forget someone's name, I say to them, Hi, I'm sorry, I'm actually not a self-centered, selfish lout who can't remember other people's names. I have this disease, nominal aphasia. Right, right. right. That's a good term. That's a good term. You know what my mother used to do, and I tried to treat teach Katrinka this. Katrinka's very quiet, you know. My mother, and I was, you know, my father died when I was 11, so I was with my mother socially a lot, and somebody would walk up and she'd say, oh, David, you remember Mrs. Smith? And I'd say, oh, of course. How are you doing, Mrs. Smith? Uh, my mother always was right on top of it and covered that. Well, David, listen, we've been going on now for... uh Almost two hours. So I, th- I think... Um, My, haven't we, though? Yeah, yeah. And we did the other day, too. <laughs> the other day we talked over two hours. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, we do indeed have a lot of catching up to do, but... Right. Um, indeed. Well, um, listen, thanks for your insight into um, uh, Zen Center, Zen, Religion... Uh, a global warming, uh, and, uh, getting out of the army and things like that. <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm sorry about the death of your friend recently. I know, I know that was hard, even though you weren't together anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, animosity is the first thing to die. Ah, yeah. You know, as time goes on, I find her her death affecting me more because I've let go of all the things that had us apart. Ah, yeah. Yeah, Liz died when I was in India in 2011, and Liz and I broke up in 1985. Uh, our, 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 you know, our nine year, uh, partnership or whatever, it terminated then. And we were always, well, the first five years she was mad at me, but after that, uh, we were very, very, very close. And, uh, Katrinka and I visited her before I went to India. And, uh, when, when I learned she died, and she died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage, I was teary-eyed for three days. So, well, you know, yeah. when, when James Kenny, one of the the uh, more recent people to join the game, 
uh, he came over early and, uh, and, you know, and he, he offered condolences. He knew Molly mm-hmm. and he offered condolences. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, I said, it's weird since we had broken up and he just, he, he was right on. He just looked at me. He said, look, this is somebody you cared about, somebody you loved, and they died. You know, it sort of doesn't matter. Hmm. Yeah. Well, David, it's time for us to move on with our busy, important lives. <laughs> Absolutely. Think, think of all the people who depend on us who are suffering as we speak. Right. Right. Indeed. Indeed. Um, well, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. I'll I'll see you on Facebook uh, <laughs> and um, uh, briefly. Uh, and um, uh, until we meet again, thank you. Until we meet again. Yeah. And it's been fun. It's been fun. Have a wonderful whatever. Yeah, you too. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Yeah. So thanks a lot, David. David Cohen. Uh, And uh, from one David to another, it's been good knowing you. May you live long and prosper. I know. Let me tell you, this guy has had more, has come closer to death in so many different ways. I think I'll spare you enumerating them. Uh, But anyway, still with us, and uh, that's uh, very good, okay? So, this has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC, Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggy Bandita and dear, lovely Katrinka, and we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank you.